You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Historical Yarns Podcast, the show where we talk about knitting from the past and bring it into the present. Welcome to episode two. I'm Rachel Roden, and last week my co-host Heather Boyd and I started with a discussion of fabric making and the history of fabric making techniques. Today we'll be delving into the evolution of knitting through the ages. So one of the things that really interests me when I started doing the research on knitting and where it developed from and what the history of it is, is how it kind of has... It started as not just a craft, but like an artisan technique to make really beautiful things and also really functional things. And it was to create items that people really wanted to buy that they needed for their everyday life. And it started there. And then over the years, it's kind of transitioned to where it is today, which is kind of a hobby craft that people do with their spare time. And I don't think very many people actually make money off of it this, these days. It's really just more for the pleasure of doing with your hands. And it's got a really interesting journey to get from the point it was in the beginning to over here where it's at, at hobby status. So that's what I that's what I wanted to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Like most people today, if they're making money from it, it's from selling patterns, not from actual making articles like in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think you were telling me at another time, back when we were doing the research for this, that knitting started out as a popular way to make garments that were fitted. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the, when you pull the yarn through loops, the way you do to make, to make knitted fabric, it makes a really stretchy fabric, mm-hmm. which turns into really stretchy garments. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you create negative ease with them, and that means that they are smaller than the, the item or the body part that they're going around, that means you'll get a nice tight fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it perfect for things like socks and undergarments and other things like that. So, which is something you just can't really achieve with weaving because no. there's no real rib stitch. Like in okay, so in knitting, if if you're a historian and not a knitter, there's a stitch in knitting called ribbing. There's a bunch of different ways to do it, but it's mm-hmm. a combination of knit and purl and it provides stretch to the fabric mm-hmm. and what Rachel is talking about, negative ease when it's off the body, it shrinks down to a smaller size mm-hmm. so that when it's on the body, it kind of hugs the curve of whatever body part it's on, say a sock or a calf or an arm, um, if you're talking about sweater sleeves mm-hmm. or things like that. So you can't really achieve that with weaving because the fabric that you get from it is it's not loose. stretchy. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's meant to be worn looser almost. And with sort of the evolution of fashion over the years, particularly with things like the hose that men would wear, mm-hmm. the, the like short pants, I'm not sure what they were called. But Breaches. Yeah, exactly. They had to have something to cover up the rest of their legs. So they'd wear the hose and those had to be like super tight. Well, they didn't have to be, but the fashion was that they would they would be super tight. So a lot of those were, were made out of knitted fabric back in the day. So it's it's an interesting history to to know that it was these tight fitting garments is where it all where it all started. And they were all made by hand in the beginning, too, because there wasn't another way to do it mm-hmm. until fifteen eighty nine. William Lee, an English clergyman, he invented this thing called a stocking frame, which is basically a mechanical knitting machine. And that was the first instance of creating knitted fabric, not by hand, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he um, apparently, I love this story, he apparently went to Queen Elizabeth I and was like, look at these amazing stockings. And <laughs> she tried them on and wore them around and was like, 
nope, I don't. <laughs> I don't like how these look. I don't like how they feel. They're super coarse. They're not very aesthetically pleasing because, you know, it was a pretty rough machine in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And she was like, nope, I don't like it. I'm not giving you a patent. And I think that this might take away jobs from my people, which we'll come back to that later. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm, I think this might take away jobs from my people. So I'm not going to give you a patent and you're not going to use this invention in my country. So she, was, she took a like pretty hard line on it. I don't have a source for that, so I'm not sure how accurate that is, but I hope it's true because I love that story and it totally sounds like something Queen Elizabeth the first would do. <laughs> she kind of like to throw her weight around a little bit, yeah. you know? <laughs> so anyway, he, uh, William Lee took his invention over to France and he got a much better reception over there and built a stocking factory and... Uh, like the first stocking factory and it sort of spread across Europe from there. And that's where you really start seeing the machine knitted garments coming into play. So I think that was by the 1600s and definitely by the 1700s, you you had a lot of um, machine knit garments out there Mm -hmm. and they were pretty rough in the beginning from what I've seen. You know, they weren't in the round yet in the round knitting machines came later on. The first ones were just flat pieces. So they were basically just just using the machine to make flat pieces of knitted fabric and then sewing them together mm-hmm. into whatever shape they wanted. And So he, the world's first tube socks. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> right. I know. So it's that like were a, not knitted as a tube, yeah, just you, sewn up the side. Yeah. You kind of just like fold it over, save it up, <laughs> call it a sock, right? It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can understand yeah. why Queen Elizabeth probably didn't want to wear that. Yeah. I know. And <laughs> it probably had like a really ugly seam. It was yeah. probably uncomfortable Mm -hmm. apparently they were black which you know i'm guessing they dyed the yarn later on so i know my so my husband he loves black he loves black socks and he loves like just like the most simple things you can think of so he's giving me the thumbs up right now (laughs) he's like sounds great (laughs) like no it does not it sounds terribly uncomfortable Um, Anyway, yeah. So um, they they definitely needed to go through some transition before the machines were able to make a quality that the aristocrats would have been interested in wearing as well as just your normal, your normal person. Mm -hmm. So, but they did get bigger and better. They, they developed into machines that could uh, do circular knitting. So you would finally get like real socks that were knit in the round and other pieces to like the arms of sweaters and stuff. Although true machine knit garments didn't really come to later on too. They're still really focused on these functional stretchy um, undergarment pieces Mm -hmm. at this point. A lot of socks, a lot of hose Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But they they started being able to do more complex designs, too, as we transition getting into the 1700s. Mm-hmm. You could do some lace. I don't think cables... Cables are never a thing that machines can do because of the way you have to... Re- Overlap. Yeah, yeah, you have to, like, switch the position of the stitches. Mm-hmm. But they, they could start doing some of the more, like, textured patterns and the lace and stuff like that. So, kind of see where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. but the uh, machines started so just taking the place of the hand knitters mm-hmm. and the the people that were craftsmen. Well, I'm sure as as things gained in popularity and whoever the trendsetters were latched on to what was common and popular, it just kind of grew into this, what we would call a viral phenomenon mm-hmm. now, right? It's Yeah, it's interesting because the, the machines were developing with the fashion trends of the time, right? Mm-hmm. So like they were just creating the fabrics that people wanted to wear mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So And in a um, quicker way. So fashion way. could move more quickly. Yeah. So yeah. that yeah. way like the trendsetters or whatever, as soon as one fashion swept through everyone else, they were onto something else, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, for sure. I mean and that's one of the biggest allures of 
the fashion cycle, right? Yeah. Is the new. And especially in Europe too, like on mainland Europe where this is happening because like some of the fashion seats of the world are, are there. So it was really just like keeping up with what was popular at the time and at that point. So, but it was a, uh, it was kind of sad for the, the artisans though, because you, from what I was reading, it sounds like you, it was a craft where you would, it was like a family thing, mm-hmm. you know, like a cottage industry. Yeah, right? it was. So like the whole family would be uh, making their entire living off of these hand knitted items, whatever it was that their family specialized in. But then they started having to compete with the machine knit stuff. And so, like I said, the first machine that would knit was a stocking frame. As the machines got bigger and better, they started moving them from the home and into factories. So the stocking frame was small enough that like a family could own one and keep it in their home and create items with it, right? Mm -hmm. But as they developed and you get the circular machines or whatever, those were much bigger. They were more complicated to produce the more complicated patterns and garments and things. And they were moving into the factories. And all of this sort of starts coming to a head in the early 1800s. And you might have heard of the Luddites. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, the textile industry is where the Luddite uprising originated. And it was because of this movement from cottage industry, like you said, and making things in the home to factories. And contrary to popular belief, Luddites are not against technology and against the um, industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, a lot you, of people you really use it, think that. I, I, You hear it used as a pejorative term, right? You do. And it's, it's people who are opposed to technology. But what it actually meant at the time was it was people who were looking at less skilled workers coming in and going to factories, doing the same job. On a machine. On a machine and getting paid less. And then over here, these people who had spent their lives developing their, their craft, craft mm-hmm were out of a job essentially because they they were creating something that could be done much faster on a machine over here. And I'm not saying one side is right or wrong because you know it was just like this meeting of technology and people and it it didn't it didn't go very well for them. <laughs> <laughs> so um the Luddite uprising was from 1811 to 1816 and as these people whose skills that were honed over a lifetime just sort of became obsolete and these less skilled workers took their place in the factories the they it just sort of came to a head and that's where they and they took their anger out on the machines too because like the only thing they could do to stop what was going on was was to to be destructive yeah was to stop the machines Mm because they weren't going to hurt the people they were mostly like not violent towards people it was just the machines and I just I have I have a little bit of sympathy for them you Mm -hmm. know because that just sucks to have your livelihood and the thing that you have done your whole life become not important anymore, you know, and and not a way to make a living. You Mm -hmm. have to find something else completely or take a pay cut and go work in one of these factories, you know? Yeah, I can see it from the other side, too, though, as like mm-hmm. a middle class person. Mm-hmm. I probably would not have the money to yeah. buy more than one pair of handmade socks a year. Yeah. So I could see why fabric production becoming cheaper and quicker would be very it was, attractive yeah. to a it lot of other better. people. It was definitely better for like overall society because mm-hmm. you could have five pairs of socks instead of just two or mm-hmm. whatever. Maybe you they know? weren't as good socks. Maybe not. But they probably weren't. They probably didn't fit your foot as yeah. well as if you had had them handmade to fit you. Yeah. But Either way, you know, we have to be thankful progress. for it because mm-hmm. it, it, it left an opening for knitting to become more of an art form 
rather than just a necessity. Yes, that's true. So why don't we take a quick break and then when we come back, we'll talk about that transition from the function of the artisans who made things to sell to more of a hobby. So we're talking about how knitting transitioned from a functional skill into a hobby. And along about the time of the Industrial Revolution, where you began to have factories that would mass produce fabric and as we were talking about before the break, knitting machines came into vogue. During that time, people started wanting patterns for different types of home goods that they could knit. And mm-hmm. so that's around the time where we start finding patterns, like published patterns, published patterns mm-hmm. that people could take home and follow to knit. And mm-hmm. that's it's kind of an interesting time period because... Knitting is like many other crafts, usually passed down from person to person. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's not even a written pattern. Right. And Mm -hmm. in fact, like certain types of knitting, we'll get into this later with Estonian lace. Mm -hmm. The actual item that you knit is considered a sampler of Mm -hmm. sorts that helps you practice a certain stitch. And as you learn a stitch, you go on Mm -hmm. to the next stitch and that's how you memorize it. And then you teach it to the next person. So having published patterns is sort of a revolution in the, in the knitting world. Right. And so once they started publishing them, they, they didn't stop. Yeah. They would just publish them in like newspapers and magazines Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And ladies magazines. mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably how it became more of a, a, a lady you know, craft or whatever, because mm-hmm. it was before it was whole families, like men, women, everybody mm-hmm. who would be involved in it, even children, yeah. you know, um, but, but it became very like female focused in this time where it transitioned into a hobby thing mm-hmm. rather than the functional mm-hmm. craft that a it was hobby and, and an expression mm-hmm. of art. Right. Yeah. So that's sort yeah. of around this time kind of within the female wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And so you ended up having all these aristocratic ladies that adopted knitting as a way of showing their artistic expression and their and their skill with handicrafts. Mm-hmm. So you'll see or you'll read in in Austin novel, novels about women practicing their net netting is what it was called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, that's what it is, yeah. is knitting. Yeah. Um and as a way to to show that they were skilled at something similar to doing embroidery or playing a mastering a musical instrument mm-hmm. or being having a beautiful voice, something mm-hmm. that you would learn in finishing school that would show that you you are a lady and worthy mm. of marriage. Yeah, right? exactly. So, it's like <laughs> you're, you're going on to the marriage mart, you know. So you got to have these skills, these like homemaker skills homemaker or whatever. Skills, or, or, yeah. yeah. I guess, or even skills to just set you apart from yeah. from someone else, or for your worth to be measured in mm-hmm. some way. I mean. It's kind of very sexist, but that's it's the 1800s, man. It's a Victorian time. Like, what can you do? It was what it was. So Rachel and I were discussing earlier about, you know, what sort of skills we would have been deemed to have. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I don't know how I would have been marketed at all. Uh, Yeah. Well, you can sing. So you got that going on. Yeah. Well, I could. I I used to could, but I can't anymore because I didn't practice it. Well, yeah. (laughs) I could kick a soccer ball pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that that would get you a husband in the 1850s but not back then I don't know nowadays though maybe yeah today not bad that's a good skill to have. <laughs> well my knitting definitely wasn't good enough to be a skill at the time that I got married so yeah, I wouldn't have been able to either. sell myself on that but yeah yeah but yeah I guess so we can all be thankful that that's not really it's not the a way practice it is these anymore days. but back in the day yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. how uh people latched onto it as something that could be 
improved continually, right? Mm -hmm. So by practice and by learning new techniques and inventing new techniques. Mm -hmm. I think that this probably was the time when different stitches began began to emerge, right? So beyond the basic knitting and purling Mm -hmm. that was required for making fabric or ribbing, Mm You you have these intricate arrangements. Right. Yeah. yeah. And people began to be more innovative Mm -hmm. in the way that they shaped garments Mm -hmm. and basically just figured out as they went along how to make Mm -hmm. something look a certain way. Yeah, exactly. Because the the benefit to hand knitting something is that you can you can achieve a perfect fit to whatever body you're trying to put something on or whatever Mm -hmm. body part you're trying Mm -hmm. to fit to by increasing and decreasing. And I think people recognize the value of that from a hobby standpoint, Mm because it's just far too time consuming to do it for each individual person who needs a sweater. But you do it for yourself or your family. Mm -hmm. Sure. Like it's a great hobby because you really can just achieve that perfect like sock or perfect sweater fit using increasing and decreasing to get to the exact right shape Mm -hmm. of of whoever it is that you're, that you're clothing. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that was one of the things that was really appealing about knitting. And it's why it managed to stay relevant because a lot of the the crafts as they were taken over by factories, you know, they kind of dropped out too. Like mm-hmm. you don't see a lot of well like we were talking before like the tatting and stuff like that. Like you don't you don't see a whole lot of some of those crafts going on Mm-mm. these days. But No, because yeah. to be efficient they had to make it as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. They had to take all embellishment away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but knitting, uh, it's just a little bit more functional. So it, and because you could make such really great pieces, it managed to like, you know, keep a toehold at least in, in society. Mm-hmm. And, and now we, we see people knitting all the time today, of course. So. Yeah. And it's still going on today too, mm-hmm. that innovation. I mean, yeah. every so often you'll, you'll see a new sort of technique or mm-hmm. a way, a new way a technique is being used for shaping or for, you know, putting lace insets in mm-hmm. a certain type of knitted fabric or a different way to do increases or decreases so they lay more nicely. Yeah. And people are still innovating all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. So much innovation. It's very like, it's like the minutiae of it a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, because it is very tiny things that are mm-hmm. being innovated. But when you're in it, it's like the most amazing thing yes. you've ever seen. It's, it's, <laughs> like when you you discover a new way to like, do a decrease or something. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. It's exhilarating. Yeah. is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, and this is the nerdy side of us coming out right now. I'm sure if you're not a knitter, you're wondering how could knitting be exhilarating, but it really is. It's exciting. When you like learn the difference between a a center double decrease versus one of the ones that slants to the right or left, you're like, this is amazing. Now I can have that perfect line of stitches down the center of whatever it is that you're knitting. (laughs) Exactly. Right. (laughs) It's life changing. Or I mean, Mm -hmm. if you think about if you're a knitter, you've probably heard of Jen surprisingly stretchy bind off. Oh, yeah. That is a relatively new thing. It I is. Mean, in the past 10 years, probably, mm-hmm. but it has revolutionized the world of socks, especially yep. for those of us with big calves. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, who's ever knitted a sock mm-hmm. and then had a really tight cuff on it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. It's but wonderful. Because knitting moved into this hobby realm, it sort of opened the door for these kind of innovations mm-hmm. to happen, which mm-hmm. is what's really cool about it, I think. And and they've invented a word for it, too. Whenever you hear knitters talking about something that has these little these little intricate parts to it, you'll hear them talk about the knitterly details, uh-huh. right? They're knitterly. knitterly. Yeah. Because they're appreciated by knitters yep. on a global scale. Yep. 
for sure. And also, we can't forget, too, that some regions and places in the world were able to keep hand knitting alive as an industry, even when machines came into, you know, more popular use in the 1800s, because there are some things that machines are just never going to be able to copy. They mm-hmm. just simply can't do it. Complicated color work, for example, cables, complicated lace patternings, stuff that you would see from like Shetland Shetland Islands, Fair Isle. We'll talk about a lot of these things in future episodes and in future seasons, but they're just way too complicated for a machine to ever be able to to do. So those hand knitters in those regions, they they actually really thrived in this time period mm-hmm. where um, everyday garments were on the downside and they were they were going over to machines. Well, these more complicated things, they 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 thrived. And like you were talking about the Estonian lace shawls and stuff like that, like. Mm-hmm. Because they, they honed in on what was special. Yeah, yeah. They it's really cool. Like if you look at it from a marketing standpoint, even like they figured out what they could do that was different that people couldn't just go to a store and buy. Mm-hmm. And they really, really figured out how to make that work for them. There's some really cool stories about whole towns that like built a whole livelihood out of out of it. And we'll get into more of those later on into the actual season. But it's really, really neat. So that was kind of the transition that happened. You get, you're still getting handed stuff coming from Fair Isle and the Shetland Islands and stuff like that. And then we're getting out of the Victorian period at this point and into like the early, early 20th century. Knitting is still alive and it really got a revival during like World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. Super mm-hmm. cool with the. Yeah. All these men were coming down with trench foot. Yeah. Because they were only issued one pair of socks. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted that pair of socks to dry, they'd have to take off their boots and dry their socks at night and then be basically sockless mm-hmm. in and very cold temperatures yeah. and it just didn't work so they'd leave their nasty wet socks on all the time mm-hmm. as you know men are what wont else, to what do are you gonna right? do it's either freeze or have nasty wet socks on i think it's i'd probably true. choose nasty wet socks too <laughs> well, i'm the opposite i have really? to take my sock off and put my shoe back i can't stand a wet sock oh mm. i don't know i don't like being cold we have, we have to see you know what i am so lucky to not have ever experienced this yes anyway yes we're all glad we've not yeah. had to experience trench foot yeah. but basically <laughs> basically (laughs) it was a huge problem and Mm so um they were asking moms and wives and daughters and basically all the women at home to start knitting Mm -hmm. because the factories could not keep up with the production of socks or they didn't have enough raw material to really run a factory yeah and the factories were making like munitions and stuff like that parachutes all the nylon and everything else was going toward parachutes and so they needed home knitters to take up the cause Mm -hmm. and knit for the men and that's exactly what they did Mm -hmm. so um everyone was constantly working on a pair of socks yep (laughs) yeah yeah, or any, you know, accessory for cold weather, scarves, hats, the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. Like the, the soldiers needed all of that throughout yep. the war. And even new new patterns came from it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, like fingerless gloves that you see oh, everywhere now. Yeah. They're so popular because mm-hmm. people love to have a fingerless glove for their smartphones, mm-hmm. right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I got to be able to access my phone and yeah. even in the middle of winter. Come Can't on. scroll your Instagram with Hashtag a mitten priorities. on. Yeah. <laughs> So they they created fingerless gloves, which they called trigger gloves, Mm -hmm. because that way the men could feel the triggers. They could keep their hand warm while feeling the trigger with their fingers. And Mm -hmm. it was another new innovation in knitting. So... Mm Yep. Yeah. Super interesting. And then um, after World War One, you know, you're getting into depression years and hand knitting still managed to, to keep on going because it was a way that people could make a little extra money on the side. You know, when you're totally out of a job and you have nothing else to do, 
well, you can at least knit all day and then maybe you can sell that thing at the end of the day and have a little bit more money, right? Mm -hmm. So the depression kind of helped keep it, I wouldn't say alive as a industry necessarily, but at least the skills got passed down through Mm -hmm. families. Like I was taught by my nanny who was born in 1930 and she learned from her mother, Mm -hmm. you know, right in that time frame in the thirties and forties, you know, in depression, World War II era. So like, you know, that it it got passed along. So at least the craft didn't die there. Yeah. It sort of rode the line between being necessary and a hobby Mm -hmm. for a lot of time there because I know, because I think sewing actually took the same route, right? Mm-hmm, because I, I know so. that even though commercially produced fabric and knitted items were available after that, most people could not afford them. Mm-hmm. And so making your own your own clothing and your own knitted items was something that a lot of people had to know yeah, how to do just to just be able to make ends meet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could at least like make your own stuff and save a little money there, then you'd have more money to eat or mm-hmm. whatever, you know. So I think those skills were passed along from family member to family member. And it was really important that that happened for the livelihood of the families. Mm-hmm. So it's cool. And then, of course, we get into World War II after that. And it was sort of a similar situation to World War One, not the trench foot thing, obviously, but still soldiers going off to really cold areas and fighting. And so the rally again to make socks, gloves, hats, mm-hmm. any kind of accessory. Mm-hmm. And, and, that and even then, I think it was also a way to take home to the soldiers. Yeah. And yeah. remind them of what they were fighting for mm-hmm. and just have that always in their mind of mm-hmm. these people back home are why I'm fighting this war. Yeah. And, and vice versa, too. It gave the people back home, like it made them feel invested in what they were sending their men off to do, mm-hmm. too. You know, because like you wave goodbye to somebody and just hope that everything turns out okay well at least you can knit him something Mm -hmm. or and then his buddy something and whatever you know you can feel a little bit more connected to those people that have been sent off to to fight for your home and your country Mm -hmm. so i think that was really important too yeah so that's sort of the history of knitting getting into the early part of the 20th century and since then it's it's gone like really straight hobby after that it's there's a lot of artistic expression going on. You know, designers will occasionally have a show that's mostly knitted garments, but it's, you know, it's just a way to express yourself. Mm -hmm. And also with the rise of unnatural fibers, you know, nylons and acrylics and that sort of thing, you see a lot of those kind of yarns coming in in the 60s, 70s, 80s, becoming a lot more prevalent. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that all, that pretty much takes us right up until today where we have this revival going on, probably when you and I both picked up knitting again mm-hmm. or learned it in the early 2000s it it got some juice back and now it's part of the like homemaking thing mm-hmm. the the DIY movement mm-hmm. so that's kind of where we're at with it today yep yeah all right well that about wraps up our brief history of knitting through the ages hope you enjoyed it and we hope you tune in next time thanks for listening so much for listening. You can find me on Ravelry and on all the socials as Rachel Unraveled. And you can find Heather on Ravelry as HeatherBoyd84. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you found it, and we'll see you next time. Happy knitting! This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.